Ruth chapter 3 One day Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you, where you will be provided for well. Now Boaz, with those women you have worked, is a relative of yours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I'm your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her, and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Thank you very much, Reba, and uh, everyone, please do keep your Bibles open there at Ruth chapter 3. What on earth are we to make of this story? Some have read it as dating tips for Christians. You know the sort of thing. Christians need a bit of help with the basics of life. So what does this passage show us? Uh, well, they say, look at Naomi's advice in verse 3. It's quite good advice, isn't it? Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor. So they say... There you go. Scrub up well, look your best, put on your best frock and get out and meet people. Maybe use a Christian dating app. And so far, that's good advice. 
But this reading does really have some limits, doesn't it? Do we really think that the best way to connect with a future partner is to creep into their room at night while they're sleeping, uncover their feet, lie down, and then wait for them to wake up? I want to suggest that that could lead to the person getting cold feet. Sorry, couldn't resist that. It's socially awkward to say the least, especially if your potential partner happens to be sleeping at the workplace, as Boaz is. No, this passage isn't dating advice for Christians. I think the key to understanding it is to recognise that the Bible is not fundamentally all about me or all about you. The Bible is all about him. It's God's story. It's written to teach us about the living God, who he is, what he's like, what he's done. So although the Bible does have lots to teach us about the way to live, the real hero behind every story is God. And the real climax to every story is actually found to be Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that today in three points. We'll unfold these three points from the story. Firstly, Ruth's risky move. Secondly, Boaz's gracious response. And thirdly, the delicate doctrine of providence. Yes, you heard that right. We haven't got three alliterated headings today. Ruth's risky move, Boaz's gracious response, and the delicate doctrine of providence. So firstly, Ruth's risky move, and I'm looking at verses 1 to 9. You remember the story so far, if you've been at Grace over the last couple of weeks. The first five books, uh, verses of this book set the scene, chapter 1, verse 1 to 5, and the context is catastrophe, it's disaster. It's a family who are living, an Israelite family living in Bethlehem, a town that literally means the house of bread, but there is no bread. It's a story of lack, um, of lack magnified. There's been a severe famine. There's no food to be had. They fear starvation. They leave their ancestral home. They go to the east to a country called Moab, a place that has often been an enemy of their country. And while they're in Moab, Naomi's husband Elimelech dies. So it's already a story of grief. A, a, a genuine story of, of, of loss and grief. And we, we then had a glimmer of hope because the two sons of Naomi managed to marry. They married Moabite women. But after 10 years, there was no heir. There are no future children to carry on the family line. So it's still precarious. And then catastrophe strikes twice and both the sons died uh, that decade later. And so Naomi was left with her two daughters-in-law, three widows, and she's absolutely bereft, empty, and despairing. And she cries out at one point, call me Mara, because the, the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Mara means bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, which means pleasant? Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. But Naomi had overlooked that the Lord had already begun to meet her need in the extraordinary person of Ruth. Ruth wasn't an Israelite, she's a Moabite. This young widow demonstrated extraordinary courage and commitment and faith. She went against all social conventions. She pledged her life to Naomi in a dramatic promise. And it is one of the most spectacular acts of faith in the whole Bible where Ruth says, where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Uh, 
where you die, I will die and I'll be buried with you. May God deal with me ever so severely if I break this promise. And so she pledges herself to this older mother-in-law and off they go traipsing back to Bethlehem. And chapter two unfolded what happened after they returned. Ruth went gleaning. This is a practice that was reserved for the poor in the nation. They could go and pick up odd bits of grain that had been dropped or had not harvested at the edge of the field. And she just happened to choose the field belonging to a man called Boaz. And as it turned out, this man is one of the few people in the world who could actually help these two poor widows. And chapter two was a bit like one of those Disney films where everything's awful and suddenly it starts to go great and the sun's shining and people are harvesting in the fields and there's actually food to harvest. And you know, maybe a few of them would start singing and dancing around the field and they're throwing the grain up in the air and Ruth's there. She's got this huge load of food, whole ephah, and she's carrying it home and everyone's singing and it's great. And Boaz turns up and he recognizes who Ruth is. He's heard about her. She's the talk of the town. And he went above and beyond in providing for her, protecting her, giving her a job in the fields, saying, be careful, don't go beyond this because you know, you're not safe, but work here, follow behind my workers, I'll make sure there's plenty of food for you. And she even has enough to take home. But you know, we know that real life isn't a Disney film and neither is the world of the Bible. So at the end of chapter two, Ruth and Naomi are still living this precarious life. Yes, they have enough food to the end of harvest, which is maybe seven or eight weeks, but they have no guarantee for the future. And chapter two ends with the poignant words, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So there's still just the two of them on their own. What on earth are they going to do? It was a man's world. This was a patriarchal society, a woman's Security, her safety, her status were all bound up with marriage and family. And if there was no husband and no children, no heirs to carry on the family line, uh, she was nothing. And in fact, they could lose their ancestral land if there were no children to pass it on to. So the whole family is actually in great jeopardy here. Now, Boaz is technically able to help under the law of the guardian redeemer. And we mentioned this last week. This was a law you find it in Leviticus chapter 25, where a near relative from the same family could step in and redeem the people who'd been afflicted and ended up uh, poor or in slavery. He could buy them out of that. He could effectively redeem them by marrying them and bringing them into his family, marrying the woman into his family, and he could provide for them. So Boaz knows that's an option, but he hasn't made the first move and he isn't legally obligated to do so. Now we don't know why Boaz hasn't done anything to this point but later we we learn that there is another redeemer who's more closely related so it may be that Boaz assumed that person would take care of Ruth and Naomi. But in the in this still in this difficult situation Naomi comes up with a bold plan and here it is again verse 3 and 4 wash put on perfume get dressed in your best clothes then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you were there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet, lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And it's rather mysterious, and some people have felt it's a little bit ambiguous. Is this some sort of, um, a come on, some sort of sexual um, situation? 
And the language is quite ambiguous in the Hebrew. It could be read in a very kind of um, upright way, or it could be read in, in rather a, a risky way. Um, no one's really sure about that. But what is really going on with this business of uncovering the feet is a marriage proposal, a symbolic marriage proposal. There's a symbolism in the ancient world of marriage to do with covering and uncovering of a garment. It's a bit like the symbolism we have on an engagement ring. So when Ruth says, uh, will you, where's the exact words, uh, spread the corner of your garment over me in verse 9, she's asking him to marry her. But this whole thing is very risky, isn't it? It's very dangerous. What are the risks to Ruth? She's going out alone in the night to a remote threshing floor, a, a high place with a rocky uh, base, to a man she doesn't know that well. This man has got all the social and the economic power in the situation. If he misreads her intentions or decides to take advantage of her, no one will hear her cry. And this was the time of the judges. This is a Wild West, lawless time in the history of Israel. Prostitutes would come to the threshing floors at night. What if Boaz got the wrong impression? Then there's the social risk. She's the woman proposing to a man. It goes against all the cultural norms. She's the younger one. He's the older. She's a refugee on a zero hours contract. He's a landowner established person. She's from Moab and Moab, Moabite women don't tend to have a very good reputation in Israel. What if Boaz just responds with disgust, with rejection and just says, no, 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 hold on. You, you know that awful feeling when you've misjudged a relationship and the other person says, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I, I'm not really interested. I didn't mean that. You know, she's risking everything. It, she, it's jeopardizing so much. But Ruth shows immense character and courage once again. What do we learn from Ruth's risky move? I think it shows us that being faithful to the promises you've made doesn't necessarily lead to a safe life. It doesn't necessarily lead to an easy existence. But it is what God calls us to. Ruth's behaviour is driven by her promise that she made to Naomi. And that has brought her to a place of danger. In other words, becoming a Christian, a follower of the living God, doesn't automatically solve all your problems. In fact, it might give you a whole bunch of new problems that you never had before or even thought about. Following Jesus Christ, following God, is not entering into a Disney film or a Hollywood film where everything starts to work. Taking the risk has the force of a promise behind it. Ruth made the promise to Naomi in the midst of a chaotic time without knowing what would come, and she keeps her word. Remember I quoted the New York pastor Jeffrey White last week. A promise is making an appointment with yourself in the future. It is a pledge for the future that says to someone, I will be there for you. A promise creates an oasis of predictability in a world of change. And when we make a promise, we are most human and most free. No animal ever promises to be there for you, but a human can, because God has made us like this. Are we ready to take risks for other people 
in order to keep our commitment. That's the example of Ruth. It's someone who is able to, to take risks, big risks for another person to keep her word, ultimately confident that God will see her through. And that kind of behaviour honours God because that's what God is like himself. He is faithful to his word. He never breaks a promise. Ruth's risky move. Secondly, Boaz's gracious response. We pick up the story in verse uh, 8. And thankfully, Boaz does understand the situation. You know, he was sound asleep. He woke up, perhaps the cool air on his feet, or he heard a noise. And he's absolutely startled. And he wakes up and sort of jumps and says, oh, what's <laughs> there's a woman lying at my feet. And in verse 9, he asks a very reasonable, obvious question. Who are you? And Ruth blurts out the whole thing. You know, she's not very subtle. She's not coy. Ruth seems to be fairly inexperienced at the dating game. She just blurts it all out. There's no ambiguity in what Ruth says. She makes it clear that this is about marriage and nothing else. And that's the point where she diverges from Naomi's advice. Ruth doesn't leave any room for ambiguity. She pins it all on the principle from God's word. Here it is in verse 9. I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Bluntly, will you marry me? Because our family is desperate and we need redemption. Now, Boaz sees all of this immediately. He understands it and he responds magnificently. Verse 10, he says, my daughter. And it's a bit like um, an affectionate way of saying my, my dear. Um, it's, it's a kind way of speaking. There's nothing flirtatious about it. My daughter. And, and he uses this wonderful word in the Hebrew language, chesed, which means kindness, loyalty, uh, loving kindness in verse 9 he says uh, sorry verse 10 he says this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier and the earlier kindness that he's referring to is when he was kind she was kind to Naomi back in chapter 1 and she pledged her herself to look after Naomi and, and, and take care of her and he says this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier you have not run after the younger men whether rich or poor. So Ruth's actions, once again, are driven by her kindness and not by what she can get out of it for herself. And we find here that Boaz is a redeemer who is both generous and righteous. He's generous. Just think about what he's, his immediate response and what he says. Uh, Don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you're a woman of noble character. Although it's true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who's more close, closely related than I. Stay here for the night. In the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. But in verse 14, he's seeking to protect her reputation. He says, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. We don't want Ruth to get a bad name. She's known as a woman of noble character. So before day breaks and the servants get up, he sends her off. But he sends her off full again. And this time he says hold out your shawl and he pulls into it six measures of barley, a great weight of grain, barley grain, and places this sack 
on her and she carries it triumphantly back once again to feed her mother-in-law and he'd she'd he'd said don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed echoes there of what Naomi had said in the the beginning of the book the Lord has sent me back empty not anymore because Boaz has come to fill that emptiness there's generosity there's kindness but there's also righteousness there's a desire to do the right thing to keep God's law and to give the the nearer relative the opportunity to redeem them. There's another person. Boaz isn't going to shortcut things. He's obedient to what God has said. And he takes this. So we find here with Boaz a gracious, just redeemer. Now, Western readers are almost pre-programmed to read this story in a certain way. Because we live in a culture that's highly individualistic, and a culture that's obsessed with romance, we actually tend to misread the story. It is a love story, no doubt. But if you think about it, it's not the love story we might have expected. This is a love story in three directions. The real love isn't about Ruth and Boaz. It's about Ruth's love for Naomi. It's about Boaz's love for their family. And it's about God's love for his people, reflected in this whole story. Let me tell you what it cost Boaz to redeem Ruth and Naomi. He married Ruth, a lifelong commitment, therefore taking all the obligations for these two widows upon himself. Now what would this be like? Imagine, and this won't be hard to imagine, a poor refugee family who have fled Syria and come to the UK and they end up in Manchester and you meet them somewhere in South Manchester. That isn't hard to imagine, is it? This family are asylum seekers. They're very poor. In fact, they have nothing. They're staying in some temporary accommodation with bare walls. They have suffered bereavement in Syria. They're going through grief, homesickness, anguish, mental health problems. You get to know them. You start to like them. You begin to realise the depth of their need. So you make a bit of a step. You invite them to your home. You cook them dinner. You introduce them to some free language classes so they can learn English at the Alexandria Library. Now all of that is good. That's worthy. But what Boaz does is way beyond that. He brings them into his family permanently. They don't just come for dinner. They come to stay. When they need money, food, clothes, healthcare, Boaz takes responsibility. He will be there. They move in to the home. He takes the risk, not because he's fallen head over heels for Ruth, who is some gorgeous blonde, but because his character is shaped by the kindness of God. And that is the only reason why a senior man in that community would make this costly commitment of redemption. It's because his character is shaped by the character of God. There's potential social stigma to marrying a widow from Moab. But Boaz knows God, the God who loves the nations. And Boaz's character is shaped by the kindness and grace of God. I wonder how much of that character is being formed in us as we go through life as we experience its trials and its joys, its sorrows and its good times. 
as we walk through the many changing scenes of life with the Bible in our hand and with Christian community around us. How much is God's character being formed as we work through life? Are we becoming more like him and therefore more like people like Boaz, that generous, gracious redeemer? And this whole thing leads us to my third and final point, which is about a doctrine, a truth in Christianity. Actually, two truths bound together, and I've called it the delicate doctrine of providence. Why delicate? Providence asserts that God is in control of all things, whether great or small, and that he is moving at all times in all people's lives to effect his purposes. But at the same time, human beings are responsible and their responsibility is real. We're not robots. We're not puppets. God is in control, but he gives us agency, responsibility, real choices to make in his world. Now, if we stray but a little too far to either side of this uh, tension, we will hit problems. If we stray too much onto the idea that God is in control of all things and we forget that we're responsible, it can lead to a passive life. It can lead to a life where people just accept things and think, well, it isn't going to make any difference anyway. It can lead to a life where people don't try to obey God. They can accept sin because they think, well, it's just part of everything. God knew I was going to do it anyway. If we stray too far the other way, it can lead us to panic because we forget that God is in control and we think it's all about us, our choices, our actions, our responsibility, and we feel alone in the world. So we have to maintain that tension of this delicate doctrine that God is in control of all things and our responsibility is real. Now we see this doctrine at work all through the book. It's like a, a golden thread that runs through the book of Ruth. Remember, the end of chapter one, they just happen to come back at the barley harvest time. What the perfect moment to arrive back in Bethlehem. And then chapter two, Ruth just happened to go to that field and it was the field that belonged to Boaz, who was the one person, the ideal person to help them, but she didn't know it at the time. And then actually in the next chapter, we're gonna find that Boaz does go out to try and meet that other redeemer and he goes to the gate just at the moment that that guy came along. All these details look like coincidences, but not to the eyes of faith, because the eyes of faith know and see that God is constantly at work in his world, and we are participants in that work. Now, here are a few implications of this for our lives. It's very rich. The first one is that God cares for us, and his care is seen even in the smallest details. You see, Ruth, the whole book, happens without God actually speaking. You may not have noticed that, but God never says a word in Ruth. There are no miracles. Nothing dramatic happens. God doesn't come down on the mountain, surrounded by smoke and with the noise of trumpets. Uh, nobody does any miracles. It's, it's kind of really like the life that we live most of the time. The life where one thing leads to another and, you know, it, it seems almost secular. There's no real drama in Ruth except for human drama and what human beings are going to do with the lives God has given them. And that's how life is for us. God cares for us in the lives that he's given us. And that means too that our lives matter to God, even the details. 
because <clears throat> he's at work even down to the level of which field Ruth goes into. He's, he's at work even to the level of the timing at which Boaz arrives at the gate. God has governed our world in such a way that he ordains when whole people groups are going to rise up in a certain country and live there and occupy it. He ordains how kings and rulers will be raised up and deposed. He also ordains, permits, small tiny things to happen in our lives day by day. So we need to be attentive to his works. So much of our life seems mundane and trivial, doesn't it? It seems irrelevant. We can be tempted to see our lives as boring. The real action always seems to be happening somewhere else. We crave for something a bit more exciting. We can become discontented, bored. But we have misunderstood the way that reality is working. Because in God's world, everything is connected. And he's at work behind the scenes all the time. He cares about the details of your life and your decisions matter. So take this with you into the workplace this week, whether you're actually working in person or on Zoom, and think about how God is using your actions, your words, your conduct, your relationships with other people all the time. God is at work in ways that you never see. We may never see them, but behind the scenes he's at work to bring himself glory and to do you good. And therefore, obedience to God is vital, no matter how trivial it seems. No matter how trivial it seems. We see that in the story. Boaz is concerned to do the right thing by Ruth, by making sure she has enough lunch and can get water from the jars. It's, it's almost a lifesaver. Boaz is concerned to make sure she has enough food and make sure his workers drop some, some crops on the floor. Boaz is concerned to make sure he honours Ruth in the way that he treats her. These things are small. Nobody sees them except the author and God. And the small little details of our lives, how Ruth takes the leftovers from her lunch and brings them home for Naomi, even these details honour God. Faithful obedience is vital, no matter how trivial it seems, because God's work in the world and his people's lives in the world are intertwined. We say it again. God's work in the world and his people's actions and lives are intertwined. They're bound together. God works very often through his people to achieve his wonderful deeds in the world. Let me give you one example of that from Ruth. And it's an interesting, unusual word. It's the word wing or wings. And it was in our passage uh, today um, in uh, verse 9. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner or wing in the, in the original language of your garment over me. Now, that's the, there's only two times in the book of Ruth where wing is this word for wing occurs and the other one is back in chapter 2 verse 12 may Boaz himself has said may the Lord repay you for what you have done may you be richly rewarded by the Lord the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge now that double use of wing is very interesting 
because in chapter 2, Boaz is pronouncing a blessing on this one young woman, Ruth, and saying, I'm praying that God will bless you, and he who, who's under whose wing you've come to take refuge. And then whose wing is it that's going to give Ruth refuge in chapter 3? Boaz, the corner or wing of his garment, his marriage proposal, his redemption, is the means that God uses to lift the family out of their refugee status. You see, God's work in the world is intertwined with his people's actions when they're obedient to him. Naomi had complained that God had sent her back empty. She ends up being full. How? Because her own actions and her own growing trust in God led to her receiving the food. You see, you may think that your life is very small and unimportant and looking at the great tapestry of history, that's true of all of us. We, we're just a pixel on the screen. But in God's eyes, your story matters because he's bringing it into his story, the greatest story ever told. The story that culminates in the redemption of all things, the renewal of all things, as God makes the world anew. Your story is part of the greatest story ever. And this odd couple, Ruth and Boaz, we find out in chapter four, did have a baby boy. And he became one of the ancestors of King David, the great king who led the people to glory. But actually more than that, the greatest descendant of all came from the line of David, was Jesus Christ himself, the one who will redeem his people forever. So Ruth and Boaz, in their funny little episode in the field and the threshing floor, end up being part of the history of Jesus. End up, in a way, being one of the links in the chain that leads to Jesus. So can we take care to remember the delicate doctrine of providence? I've always been teased in this church about my use of illustrations to do with William Carey who was a great Baptist missionary of the 18th century, 19th century. And I've laid off Kerry for a while, but Kerry's coming back today because Kerry's always talking about providence. And let me finish with a few quotes from his letters to encourage you. He sees the hand of God in events great and small, positive and negative. Dear brethren, he writes, I am through the mercy of God still in the land of the living and have been led by divine providence through an amazing labyrinth of circumstances, till I am in a very unexpected manner settled in this place and surrounded with most pleasant circumstances. He saw God's hand at work in the misfortune that had led him from one place to another, but when he ended up there, he said, you know, this is divine providence. He was very sick, but a friend came to visit, not knowing that I was ill, and brought a bottle of bark with him, medicine, this was a great providence as I was growing worse every day. Listen to this next quote. This is Carey reflecting on a, a missionary who'd come from England and died soon after he arrived. All I can say in this affair is that however mysterious the leadings of providence are, I have no doubt, but that they are superintended by an infinitely wise God. About 17 days after the arrival of our brethren, it pleased our wise Lord to remove our dear brother Grant from us by death after an illness of 10 days. This was a very afflicting providence to us, but no doubt 
it was done in infinite wisdom. I think in this delicate doctrine of divine providence, we're going to find ballast for the ship of our lives. Something to stop us being turned by the waves of circumstance and situation and the emotions of our own heart. If we can really grasp that God is genuinely in control, that he really loves you, that he's working all things for your good, and that even the small details of your life matter to him and matter to his will, I think it will change our attitude. And as we think about that, the place we would do best to reflect on it is the foot of the cross. Because there we see human responsibility and divine action, a divine human combination of the most extraordinary kind, in which a shameful, mean, obscure execution of somebody outside the city gate turns out to be the redeeming act through which God will save the whole universe. Let's learn to trust him, shall we? Let's pray. Gracious God, we want to thank you today that you have sent us a guardian redeemer and his name was Jesus. He was a close relative to us, a member of the human family. And more than that, he was a member of the divine family. And what you've done through him is to adopt us as sons and daughters of the king. Thank you for the assurance in this story that you're always at work even when we don't hear from you or see you. And grant us to trust you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.